welcome to episode 11 of Conversations with the Code 9 Foundation. In this episode, we are absolutely pumped to be joined by Mark Dobson. Pretty impressive resume here, so I won't read it all out, but just some of the highlights here. He's founder of Ordinary Courage, which I'll get into touch on and let us know what that is. But listen, he's a Navy veteran, firefighter, disaster response volunteer, and he's also been um, the recipient of a Churchill Fellowship, which we're going to get him to talk about as well. But the main reason we're, we've got him here with us today is to talk about some of the mental health work that he has worked on over the better part of three decades. Mark, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So, listen, where do we start? Um, the Churchill Fellowship, I think, is one of is, – that's the reason um, I actually reached out to you because I was listening into a webinar that you were doing with Greg Dean, who our listeners will probably be familiar with because Greg was one of our um, first podcast uh, interviewees earlier on in the season, and he also did a Churchill Fellowship. And you were talking about some of the work that you did as part of your fellowship in that webinar, and I was pretty interested and didn't get enough information that evening, so I wanted to to be able to have a chat with you about the work that you did in that. So maybe we can start off there, and I'm sure we'll go off on all sorts of tangents from there. So maybe um, we can start off just by explaining to our listeners what what you were actually trying to do with your Churchill Fellowship. Yeah, so my Churchill Fellowship was a kind of a broader approach to mental health. So I had worked with fire and rescue in, in, in the military in the mental health space. But um, the Churchill Fellowship that I was awarded was around um, veterans and volunteering and how to get um, veterans more involved in the volunteering space. And that comes a fair bit away around from an organisation that I volunteer for, which is was called Team Rubicon Australia and now it's called Disaster Relief Australia and it's an organisation that harnesses the skills of veterans and first responders to do disaster relief work. So we go into uh, areas post-disaster and engage with the community and if you work in the emergency service space, you know, you know the response stuff we do pretty well but then when, you know, a week or two after the event there's what happens next and the recovery phase in the emergency management structure is a little bit underdone, and that's where we spend a lot of our time with uh, Disaster Relief Australia. So we have volunteers. We go into the field. We use a very structured incident management team, very similar to most emergency management agents, agencies, and then we um, put teams in the field. So we engage with local residents, work out what needs to be done, triage that work, and then um, get out in the field. So we do, you know, we've done Cyclone Debbie up north. We did floods in Townsville, we've done bushfires in Tarthra and um, McLean and, you know, this the last, you know, black summer sort of is, is, is we, had, we had ended up having four operations running consecutively for, over summer. Just look in Adelaide, Kangaroo Island, uh, Victoria and New South Wales. So, you know, we do basically the grunt sort of work that, um, that a lot of the community members can't do and are in desperate need of. So... I have to ask, Mark, you too, because, I mean, Team Rubicon that you were formerly known as, I mean, great reputation. I've heard so many great things about it. But I've got to ask, why the name change? Where did that come from? A couple of reasons behind the name change. The first one was that every time you met someone, you spent the first five minutes explaining what Team Rubicon (laughs) is, what Rubicon was and all that sort of stuff, whereas Disaster Relief Australia pretty well says exactly what What we do. What you do, fair enough, yeah. Yeah. Another thing was that even though we're still closely linked to Team Rubicon in the US, um, there were some licensing challenges about you know, whether we could put logos on things and stuff like that. So 
We just wanted to have our own identity a little bit, and that was probably the, cha- the, the key two factors of the change. But, um, yeah, I think, you know, we're still very associated with Team Rubicon um, worldwide, and the Team Rubicon has, um, has arms in, we've started in the US, but it has arms in Canada, the UK, Australia, and Norway. So, and they're planning to expand, you know, across the rest of the world. And it's a great way to, you know, harness the skills of veterans. Um, I think one of the things, if you talk to any veteran, um, they have amazing skills. Our CEO goes, don't tell me I can't use a chainsaw. I used to open doors with explosives. <laughs> you know, you know they've got amazing skills. They're very, you know, um, self-driven, self-motivated. They're, you know, they're been leading group, small groups of people since they were in their 20s and they're really, really good at it. So just harnessing those existing skills makes perfect sense. So that's where the RA kind of spends most of its time and its energy. So that's the one side of it. We do community relief sort of work. But the other side is that it gives veterans back their sense of service, their sense of mm. purpose and their sense of um, identity. And that's really, really important, you know, that People that go away with us, the veterans go away with us, really reconnect and, and have a similar sort of a veteran experience to what they really enjoyed in the military. And um, and they and the other side of that is that then they reconnect with first responders and, and civilians that deploy with us and they broaden their network a little bit. I think a lot of veterans have problems transitioning back into civilian life because they surround themselves with other veterans and it's just a little um, closed group of people just thinking about how good the old days were. And what they need to do is start thinking about the future. And um, that's what uh, DRA does. That's something we've certainly taken away from a lot of the podcasts that we've had this season from Jeff Kennett, from Graham Ashton, from Tony Walker, uh, from Andrew Chris. But one of the recurring themes that's coming out of that around mental health and wellbeing, particularly in the retired um, population, is this whole, whole concept of once you retire, you take off your uniform, you lose your identity. And one of the biggest issues is that so many responders tend to really, um, their mates are all within that service as well. And so um, Cameron Ling actually, it was a, a bit of a, a, an awesome podcast that we had. Um, and he was obviously, you know, the, the captain of the Geelong Footy Club and he was talking about it was similar for him from that elite football perspective. But one thing he highlighted that he found really beneficial right through his career is he always had mates outside of the footy club. And that, that helped him ease into to retirement and transition because he did have friends outside of the footy club and he said so he thinks that that's really important for people inside the emergency services and I'm assuming for veterans as well is that to have mates and activities and interests outside of work is going to be so important to help people transition when that time comes and so I'm assuming that that's something that would have you know resonated with you guys as well as veterans is that it probably doesn't help when all of your mates and all of your interests and all of your activities are within the military and then when the military is taken away, yeah, who are you? Yeah. No, I think you're, that's exactly right. I think, you know, a broad network of, um, of people, friends and, and associates is really, you know, a positive influence on your mental health. That's pretty well acknowledged worldwide. Um, and I think... Military, it's probably tougher to have friends outside the military because of the nature of your deployments and things. Sometimes you go away for months and years, um, but and, and it's so convenient. You know, it doesn't matter what you know. I remember when I was on a warship. It doesn't matter what you wanted to do. There was a collection of people that wanted to do it. You know, if you wanted to play golf, go to the movies, go for a run, do some sort of exercise, go to the pub, which was the majority of people. But um, 
you know, there was always a, a cohort of people to do it. So it was really, you didn't think about it too much. But then when you leave, you go, all right, what are we doing? Oh, there's no one around. And you actually have to be a little more proactive in making those connections. And I think that's what we're really encouraging in, in Disaster Relief Australia is getting people to be proactive about, you know, the preventative measures around, um, you know, creating positive mental, mental, positive mental health. And is it also, um, sorry to cut in there, yeah. is it also too that sometimes it's just easier to relate to people who just get it? They understand what you've seen, you can talk to them without having to filter. Because I guess, you know, I mean, I'm nowhere near what you guys have seen or done, but just with all the work that I've done with traumatised people and everything that I've done with the 9-11 population, I accidentally, I didn't mean to, but I would come home and I'd talk to my husband and then vicariously traumatise him without even meaning to. And so I guess particularly with what you guys do, as you just said, you're away for months at a time, you've seen stuff that no one should have to see. Um, sometimes it's just easier to talk to people who get it. You don't want to then come home and tell your friends and or, you know, try to have to filter what you've seen or done or um, so I'm guessing it's just sometimes easier to have mates that just get it. Yeah, no, I think, I think you're exactly right. And I think that's the same in, in the emergency services as well. You know, if you want to have a little decompress after a nasty day at work, it's so much easier to do it with your mates, traditionally over a beer, but, you know, in any environment, rather than take it home to your family. And I think there's, you know, I talk to my fireys about when they go home, if they've had a bad day, to let their partners know mm. that they've had a bad day not necessarily explain the details of it, but, you know, if you turn up and you don't let them know that you've had a bad day, then you go off and do and process that in the way that you might like it. And it might be going to your man cave and sitting quietly or disappearing for a motorbike ride or going fishing or whatever. Um, if you haven't told them that, then people start thinking, what have I done wrong yeah. to cause this? So whereas if you open and say, hey, I had a bad day, I'm going to go and do some little decompression and away you go and everybody understands what's going on. And it's quite simple, but it doesn't happen enough. Yeah, it was really interesting. I, I shared a, a, a post on um, Code 9 recently and it was, you know, if we want our kids um, to be able to have open and honest conversations with us, then we need to have open and honest conversations with them as well, even though they're tough. But I think we need to be then able to, you know, train people, I guess, and educate people about how to actually have those conversations. And uh, I, we, I talked to Tony Walker in the podcast about that and I asked him whether AV were training and educating paramedics about that because I said it's all well and good to say you need to ask people, are you okay? But are we then educating people about how to have that tricky conversation that comes next? Because what if someone turns around and says, actually, no, I'm not? People freeze up because we just don't know how to have those tricky conversations. So, yeah, I think it's really important for us within the emergency services to, to sort of, I don't know how, whether it's training or educating people or just going that next step on from normalising those conversations to actually knowing how to have those tricky conversations. And that's not just among the emergency services, but it's also among the family members as well. So that, like you said, when you go home and you've had a crappy day, that your wife or partner or loved one or whoever knows how to have that conversation. Mm. No, and I think that's really good. In, in Fire and Rescue, um, we developed a program with the Black Dog Institute and there was an article published in The Lancet uh, about that. And um, what we did, we did a four-hour training session with um, managers and uh, we gave them some mental health literacy, but the second half of the training was around how to have difficult conversations with their staff. And uh, what we found was 
that people came back to work more quickly if they'd had a positive conversation with their manager. So definitely it makes sense. But the second part of that was that once you've trained managers to have conversations around a person's mental health, then most other conversations get easier as well. You know, um, and, and also once you've had a con- your first one, the second one is exponentially easier than the the first one and they just get you know once you've been you've had your fifth conversation with a worker about their mental health then every conversation be it a performance management conversation be it a difficult conversation about anything gets easier so there was a real flow-on effect to the communication ability of those managers so i think it was a really positive training we still do that with all of our all of our managers when they get promoted so that they can have those sorts of skills and we encourage them to do that and also the other part of that is when we say if there is a problem or a conflict in the workplace, don't just assume that it's a disciplinary matter. Let's think about it from a mental health perspective first. And you address those concerns. Most of the time, you know, the conflict or the disciplinary problem goes away because there's an underlying problem that you've addressed. It's really so, interesting. Um, yeah, that was a really positive sort of training that we did. When um, I did a recent podcast actually with Graham Ashton in um, Victoria here just before he stepped down from um, the chief commissioner role and I asked him about, you know, what he would like to see happen in the future and he said he would really like to see a move towards a mandatory six-monthly wellbeing check-in, whether people were well or not. And that's certainly something that I've been advocating for for quite a while in that, you know, we need to build a rapport between everyone in the emergency services and the wellbeing team, particularly when they are well, and that we need to reach in instead of expecting people to reach out when they're in crises. So I'm wondering what your thoughts are around that. No, I completely agree with that. We, um, in my time, so I was the wellbeing coordinator for fire and rescue from 2009 until 2017. Um, And during that time, we really ramped up the wellbeing checks that we did. So we... Originally, we were doing it through our employee assistance provider, but over time, we, one of the challenges there is trying to get um, psychologists that understand the culture and, and have a conversation. And if you spend the first half of your conversation with psychologists explaining what you do and how it, how it works, that's not a very benef- beneficial session. So what we did was we kind of found contract um, psychologists, uh, clinical psychs that could do those sort of well checks, and we gave them a brief so they understood our culture and our and the language and all those sorts of things. So the, those sessions became far more positive. Then we rolled them out to um, kind of at-risk groups initially, so our fire investigators and our managers and some of our trainers, and then we kind of encouraged local zone management teams to identify their at-risk stations, and a lot of those guys were, were rescue stations because they were going to more incidents. So we aligned and... And we're kind of in the, still in the process of getting more and more uptake on that. Um, so there's a reactive part to it and also a proactive part. Um, but what we've found is that people that have had one well check and had a conversation with a psychologist are more likely to have another one or, or reach out to that psychologist if they were in trouble. So it definitely makes perfect sense. I think, I think the challenge for us is how do we you know, make that a normal part of the, of the firefighter's life? Um, and, um, you know, and, and, and yeah, I suppose um, I'm not, not sure whether we're there yet for that. So we still kind of ta- use it as a targeted mechanism rather than a general mechanism, but uh, it's definitely something that needs we need more of. So I've done um, one of my biggest research projects over my career is that I followed up a cohort 
of responders that went to the 9-11 terrorist attacks over a 15-year period and not surprisingly saw a massive change in their mental health over that amount of time. And I'm wondering what kind, you just said you've been um, involved in peer support with FIRE for a, a pretty decent chunk of time now. I'm wondering what kind of changes you've seen in people's perceptions and reactions to mental health and their uptake of mental health services and peer support over that time that you've been involved. Is there is there more of an acceptance of it now? Oh, definitely. I think there's, you know, the work that Beyond Blue in, around the increasing awareness originally of depression and now, you know, more broader anxiety and other mental health problems, you know, has started to have its, you know, have an impact on, on all of society. I think, so I think it's a really positive thing. And I think you can notice there's generational changes in the fire service where you've got some people that have been in, in the job for 30 years they still have a bit of an old, you know, put on a strong facade, I'm a firefighter, nothing happened to me. Um, and and then you get the younger members of the organisation that are coming through that are far more um, open to a discussion around their mental health, far more, exercise far more inside. I used to say, as when I was a wellbeing coordinator, that if each of our firefighters just exercised a bit of insight, we wouldn't really need a wellbeing team, you know. And I think it's real. I used to do a comparison that, it's amazing how well we look after our equipment in the emergency services and, and in the military as well. Like you check everything every morning and you make sure it's all in operational order, but we don't really check ourselves, mm. you know, and there should be a little check every morning. Hey, how am I traveling today? What sort of stressors have I experienced over the last week that are going to impact on me when I get to work? Um, because you can't, the nature of emergency service work, you can't predict when you're going to have um, the worst day of your life, you know, so you could be really stressed, tired, worn out on a whole heap of other fronts and turn up to work and then experience a really, really uh, potentially traumatic event. So, you know, you've got to say to yourself, I need to be prepared when I get to work so that I can, you know, deal with the worst possible thing that I might come up against. I'm aware that I started off asking you about your Churchill Fellowship and we got a little bit distracted. So if we can go back to that. Um, yeah. Being mindful that that our listeners are obviously within the emergency services more so than volunteers, what sort of fi- your findings? What could what key things can you take out of that that would still be relevant for the emergency services in terms of supporting yeah, wellbeing? Two, two sides to my fellowship. The first was like a smaller piece, which is probably most relevant to um, emergency service workers, and then a broader one, which was uh, still I'm still working on, is how to get veterans, you know, engaged in volunteer work and and retained in volunteer work. I think a lot of our traditional volunteer organisations have a process of recruitment and, and retention that doesn't really suit military veterans because they, it doesn't acknowledge the skills that they bring um, and doesn't give them the leadership opportunities to, you know, in, in early on and so they don't last very long, they, you know, because they've come out of an organisation that is giving them lots of opportunities and lots of responsibility. And then they say, yeah, in 10 years' time, you'll get to drive the truck or something like that. And so they're not lasting 10 years. They're, they're, they're lucky to last, you know, 10 weeks. So that's a bigger piece of work that I have to work out how to, you know, change the attitudes perhaps of some of the volunteer organisations to be have some fast tracks for military people um, because there are examples where military people have persevered and gone on to do great things in those organisations. So, But you can't guarantee that uh, veterans are going to persevere, so we need better pathways. Um, on the smaller piece, which was what kind of, I went away trying to work out how to um, empower younger veterans um, to um, 
to connect and, and lead a little bit better. And that's in our organisation, DRA, what we're trying to do is, you know, foster leaders and, and, and build a leadership cohort. Um, and what I've discovered with the people I've talked to in the US is that um, they really empower their leaders to connect with at-risk people. And I think this is where it fits into the emergency service space. Um, we, you've got to you've got to train people to look around in a group and not you know it's just very comfortable to hang around the people that you have a lot in common um, but good leaders look around the group and look at the, the disconnected people or the at-risk people in that group and focus their energy and attention to make sure that they're included and given an opportunity um, so kind of what I've come back with is I wrote a grant application to the Department of Veteran Affairs for a Young Leader Fellowship, which is really just a, um, a one year of training with the Australian Institute of Management, and then that's mixed in with DRA training, but then get the people to, the, the, the leaders to um, practice those skills by going out into their cohort and their community and identifying at-risk people and, and, and kind of bringing them into the, into the fold. And I think that is something that can definitely we can do definitely better in the emergency services space is train our younger leaders. So we're talking, you know, people that have been in the job, you know, up to 10 years before they get into a management position, give them the skills and the confidence to engage with people who they know they're at risk because we know in, in, the, in the fire service, I think in every emergency service and the military, um, you notice people who aren't travelling well and you don't have the skills or the confidence to engage with them and those engage, missed engagement opportunities end up, you know, leading into to far worse outcomes. So if we give people the skills to identify and engage those people, and the confidence I think is a big part of it, you know. So, we, you know, I think that's, that's kind of where I've been putting most of my Churchill energy since my return. Some really interesting stuff. Yeah, really interesting ideas there. So um, I think we'll have to stay engaged and connected and listening to, to you know, find out what you, you know, find, you know, find out and how you um, move forward with all of that work. I think really interesting stuff there. Before we started recording, we were having some interesting conversations as well that I'd like to, to follow up on. One of your um, things that you were talking about was that you have a bit of a feeling that maybe within the emergency services these days, we might even be tending to over-diagnose within the mental health space, particularly around PTSD, and that maybe for some psychologists it might even be, you know, a bit too easy now to just go, well, you're within the emergency services, you must have PTSD. And as you said, that can be quite damaging because once the label's put on, it's quite hard to take off. So I'm wondering if we can elaborate a little bit on your thoughts around that. Yeah, I think, um, you know, one of the challenges is, as, as you mentioned, if you've got a uniform or you come from a uniform service and you go into a, your GP or a psychologist and say, I've got some mental health problems, straight away they'll start saying, hey, what have you seen, what have you done, that sort of stuff. Whereas if we know that one in every five people has a mental health problem at any time and uniform people are just representative of the community, so they're going to have depression and anxiety and, 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 and normal mental illnesses. So, you know, just jumping straight to a diagnosis of, of, of a post-traumatic stress is a risk. Um, and I, you can understand why, but I think what, you know, what I've really, what we in Fire and Rescue have done, and if someone has some a mental health problem, we get a really comprehensive diagnosis from a psychiatrist first. So rather than just saying, hey, what does the GP say, we, we try and get them connected with a, with a real um, 
really well qualified diagnostic um, person so that they can get the best diagnosis because one of the challenges is if you're treating someone for post-traumatic stress disorder and they've got depression or anxiety, then they're getting the wrong treatment and they're not going to get better. So trying to get that figured out I think is an important thing. Um, the other side of that is that I think uniform people, um, because PTSD is an injury rather than an illness, are, are, are more likely to say, yeah, yeah, I was injured at work, this incident caused this. Um, but if, if someone's suffering from depression or anxiety and they're exposed to a traumatic incident, then yeah, it's going to have an, a, probably a bigger impact on you, but maybe we need to be dealing with the underlying problems first. Mm. I think obviously we've come a long way in our understanding around managing those sort of things, but um, do you see that we've come a long way in people's um, mental health literacy in recognising and putting their hand up and acknowledging that there's an issue there and and being willing to seek the help for it? I th- yeah, I think there's still lots of work to be done in that space. We did a survey in fire last year, I think, and 80%, so four out of every five people said that if one of their workmates had a problem, they would, you know, accept and help them with that problem. So I think the awareness is really, really good. But the other side of that is only one in five people said that if they did have a problem, they would ask for help. So there's still, um, you know, a stigma attached to that to say, hey, um, how's it going to affect my career? How's it going to, you know, how's it going to affect my promotion? So people are still reluctant to ask for help. So it's, it's quite a, a stretch, you know, and um, I think generally managers, um, you know, if we know that one in every five people has a mental health problem, that only one, you know, 80% of managers think that none of their staff have a mental health problem. So, again, that's a disconnect. If you're not aware that there's a likelihood, if you've got more than five staff, one of them's not travelling well, if you're not aware of that, then, um, then you can't help them. And, you know, and then you probably... If you're not aware of that, then you probably haven't had the training around, you know, either mental health first aid or having difficult conversations to identify and engage with those people. So that's, it's a it's a huge organisational risk, not just in fire, but I think in any organisation, um, to have managers that don't have the knowledge to identify at-risk people and support them. Mm. And I think it's very reflective. We, we had a um, recent podcast with the CEO of Beyond Blue, Georgie Harmon, and she was touching on the big, um, you know, groundbreaking study that they did with, you know, some 21,000 emergency service personnel in 2018. And what they identified was that, you know, it was very interesting that the majority of the personnel didn't stigmatise each other, but they self-stigmatised. And that there was that real concern in actually putting their hand up and saying, I've got a problem here. And uh, that there were still prevailing issues with mental health literacy. So she said, we've still got a ways to go with that and that there's still work to be done in, in the culture across the emergency services. And so I'm aware we're coming towards the end of our podcast. We've got a few minutes left. So I'd like to put to you the same sort of question that I've left Tony Walker with and Graham Ashton and Andrew Crisp and quite a number of our other guests. And it's, I think whenever I speak to emergency service personnel and first responders out there on the ground, there's still a sense of frustration. They're like, you know, we've done the research, we've had the inquiries, 
we know what the problems are, but nothing's changing. You know, it's it's 2020. Why aren't we seeing real change yet? And I'm wondering from your perspective, what needs to happen for real change to be seen at the ground roots? Yeah, I think the challenge is, you know, you're changing culture. Um, and in, in organisations that have long career spans, it's a lot harder to change culture. If you work at a law firm and staff change over every three years, then there's a real opportunity to change the culture with your new staff. But if you've got people that serve for 25, 35 years, they, you know, they, they're going to have, have their mindset that it's difficult to change. Um, and, and the challenges in, in organisations that work in really tight groups like FIRE is that those negative um, um, attitudes rub off on people as much as positive attitudes. So even if you're making a positive change in some, then the new recruits come out to a fire station and then are exposed to some older mindsets. So it is a really, really slow process. In fire, I think we did some really great work in setting up some frameworks. We've got some really good framework that kind of supports firefighters from the time that they're recruits all the way to the, to the after they've left and they've retired. But what we don't, haven't done yet is increase the awareness of our workforce about those programs. You know, so you know you can celebrate and say we've done all this great work, we've we've solved we've solved the problem, but you haven't really solved the problem until you have people at the coalface fully aware of all those programs. And I heard a a, talk, a, a, a um, presentation oh, ten years ago probably, and it was the health and safety advisor for Jetstar, and they and his. The, their CEO said, I'll know that our mental health programs are working when I can get off a plane in Port Hedland and talk to one of the baggage handlers and they'll, they'll be able to tell me what programs I've got in place. You know, and I think the same thing in fire rescue New South Wales, we're the third biggest fire service in the world. We have 7,500 workers. We have 337 fire stations. Just the, And it's spread across a huge geographical area. Um, just getting out and getting in front of those people is a huge, huge challenge. Um, so I think we've done the right thing. We've got some good frameworks, and I think that's what Beyond Blue's done really well with the first responder framework. But then getting that out in front of people regularly, because you don't create change by just telling someone once. You've got to regularly visit and have those conversations. And, um, you know, my challenge is when I visit a fire station to talk about mental health, that afternoon someone turns up and talks about, you know, chainsaw operations or vertical rescue or snake handling or whatever the next thing is. So there's it's a very, very busy space, education and emergency services. And, you know, I think that mental health is the most important thing, but the chainsaw guy thinks the chainsaw is the most important thing. So <laughs> there's a lot of competing priorities. Yeah, I, I like your Jetstar analogy, actually, because I was, um, you know, I go out and I speak to some organisations and, you know, consult around mental health and wellbeing and I was added a, a big volunteer organisation. It was actually just as the bushfire crisis was taking off and I remember they asked me once and they said, well, how will we know if we've made change around wellbeing? And I said, because when I go out in the field and I talk to some of your more senior volunteers around wellbeing, um, you'll know that you've actually made change when they don't turn around and say to me, we'll just suck it up. Because, you know, if, you, if, you're, if you've got a problem with wellbeing, then you shouldn't be out here sort of thing. I yeah. said, when they're still saying that to me, then you know you've still got a problem. I said because yeah. that sort of old attitude is, you know, you know, 
you've still got an issue when they're telling you to suck it up. And um, so, yeah, I, I like that analogy that, you know, when, when you've reached everybody, then you know you've made a change. And as you said, sometimes that just takes time. And um, it's not easy. It's certainly not, a, it's certainly not an easy thing to change that embedded toxic culture around um, mental health and wellbeing. And I think I, I'm incredibly proud of us here in Australia. I said I've had so many international guests come out and they go away and they're just like, wow, you, know, you guys are doing an incredible job here compared to what we've done overseas. Um, but, you know, yes, we've still got a long way to go. But I think, yeah, we can be pretty proud of the steps that we've, we've put in place and how far we've come, I think. So, but, yeah, um, yeah. yeah. I agree. And I think one of the things sometimes we do forget to pause and celebrate the, the, what we have achieved. Um, we're just so focusing on, well, look, we haven't changed everyone's mind. Well, let's, it's going to take some time, but let's, let's be really, really happy that emergency services are starting to think proactively around mental health, workplace mental health. Um, there's, you know, um, and let's work out how we can support that change. And I think generationally we, it'll change, but it's going to take some time. And uh, we just need to acknowledge that we're doing some good work and persevere. I, everyone that says to me, you know, how, how, how do you achieve things in, 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 a, in a bureaucratic organisation or in, in the mental health space? It's perseverance. It's not through inspiration or great ideas. You have a great idea, but it takes six or seven years to get that idea implemented. You've just got to bang away and bang away and keep reminding the, the senior leadership teams that what you're doing is important and keep them invested in it. I was really lucky in Fire and Rescue that my executives were really supportive of me, but you still have to get out there and remind them of that as well. It doesn't just, it's not one conversation and then we're finished. Well, I think the things that I've taken away from our chat today, Mark, is that to be successful, a wellbeing program has to be both proactive and reactive. Um, and that it needs to be implemented when people are well as well. You can't just wait until they're in crisis because that's not going to work. And um, that, like, as we've just said, it needs to celebrate our successes as well. We can't just constantly have a negative narrative around it. We need to be celebrating what, what works as well. So, um, And I, I appreciate your time um, today to join us and, and to talk about what you've been working on and looking at the military and what we can learn from that and what we can learn from the volunteer space because there's so much that we're doing in different areas that we can bring together to the emergency services and learn from. And I think there's lots of exciting stuff and, yeah, we can celebrate what we've been doing here in Australia because, as I said, you know, I think the so many other areas of the world look to us as world leaders in this space. So I think we can be very proud of that. So continue the amazing work. We will certainly keep in contact and, and watch what you're doing with a close eye and we will certainly be getting you back in the future to to. Give us an update on where you've um, been heading with all your exciting work. So thank you so much for your time today. No worries. Thank you, Aaron. Thanks for having me.